Well, brothers and sisters, it's good to be back with you all, and thank you all for being here tonight as we pick back up again with our study of the book of Revelation. And we're going to be in chapter 15, but I think it would be good for us just to kind of give a quick overview of where we have come to this point. Uh, some of you, probably many of you, have been with us through the whole study, but others are new. So I think it would be good to see where chapter 15 and 16 fall in light of the totality of the book. First of all, uh, Revelation uh, is an apocalyptic book, which means it is a book that uses uh, symbolic language, uh, fantastic visions. Uh, it is not to be interpreted literally, it is to be interpreted symbolically. It does talk about literal events uh, and literal persons and literal happenings, but it does so with very picturesque, uh, sometimes even grotesque imagery that uh, allows us to unwrap uh, the ideas related to those particular events in person. Now, when you start into the book, chapter 1 is basically broken down into two parts. You have a greeting in verses 1 through 8, and then you have the first of several visions of Christ in 9 through 20. And you also find, and that's a key, that's a Greek letter, that's not an X, I'm not uh, speaking ill of Christ, that is just the shorthand that the scholars and uh, Bible students that use Greek use all the time. So you have this vision of Christ in chapter 1, and there's a key verse. Uh, we marked it when we worked our way through chapter 1, but just by way of reminder, chapter 1, verse 19, uh, John is told, Write therefore the things that you have seen, uh, those that are, and those things that will take place after this. And I think we can make a very good argument that 119 is a key interpreted verse, the things that you have seen, well, that's chapter 1. The things that are, that's chapters 2 and 3, where you have the seven letters to the seven churches. And then the things that will be is chapters 4 through 22. And so most of the book, I believe, is rightly understood to be talking about the very end of time and looking toward the future. Yes, chapter 1 is looking, in a sense, back, but laying the foundation because this vision that you have of Christ impacts the understanding of the seven letters in chapters 2 and chapters 3. So then we get to chapters 4 through 22 where we're in the midst of that this evening. So you say, well, what do we have there? Well, I'll stay down here for a minute. Chapters 4 and 5 move us from earth to heaven. And in chapter 4, you have this beautiful vision of God the Father who is the Creator. And the theme of chapter 4 is creation. Then in chapter 5, you have this beautiful vision of God the Son who is our Redeemer. And the argument is basically this. By creation, chapter 4, and by redemption, chapter 5, God has both made this earth and He has redeemed this earth, and so He can do what He wants to with this world because it belongs to Him. He made it, He redeemed it, it is His, all right? And so then in chapter 6 and following, and really 6 through 19, you have a number of chapters that basically fill out for us what we often refer to as the Great Tribulation. 
So when you get to chapter 6 and you work your way all the way through chapter 19, you're in a repetitive series of judgments upon the earth that constitute what we know popularly as the Great Tribulation. Sometimes it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Sometimes it's called the day of the Lord. And so chapter 6 through 19 comprise that. Now, it's where we're going to be tonight. There are three series of judgments that you find in these chapters. There are the seal judgments of chapter 6. There are the trumpet judgments of chapters 8 and 9. And there are the bold judgments, which are the final and climactic ones in chapter 16 with a prelude, as we're going to see tonight, in chapter 15. Now, this is very, very, very important. I make the argument, and I think it's on good ground, that these judgments are not strictly consecutive, nor are they repetitive, but the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls. And what that means is each time you get to the seven, the seventh seal, you're at the end. But you're not at the very end because out of it comes seven trumpets. Well, when you get to the seventh trumpet, you're at the very end, but not quite because coming out of the seventh trumpet are these final seven bowls. And when you get to the seven bowls, now you are at the very, very end. And it's not by accident that you read at the end of chapter 16 about a thing called the Battle of Armageddon. And so each time you come to the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl, in some sense you are at the end because the seven trumpets flow out of the seventh seal. And the seven bowls flow out of the seven trumpets. And so where we are tonight is here. We've come to the final and climactic series of judgments. It's also interesting to note, when the seal judgments unfold, about a fourth of everything is wiped out. When the trumpet judgments unfold, about a third of everything is wiped out. When you come to the bowl judgments, everything is wiped out. Which is why, contrary to some very good friends of mine, I don't think that the series of judgments are to be understood like, well, the first seal is the first trumpet, is the first bolt. They're just looking at it from different perspectives. I don't think that works. Because here a fourth of things are being wiped out. Here a third of things are being wiped out. Here everything is being wiped out. It seems to me that there is an increasing intensity to these series of judgments. Some overlap, yeah, because of this phenomenon right here. But they're not talking about the same thing, nor are they consecutive in that they go... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, they're the seals. Then comes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, they're the trumpets. And then comes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, the bowls. No. Seventh seal is the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is the seven bowls. And when you get here, as he says in this final chapter six or in chapter sixteen, the judgments of God are finished. It's over. It's done. The next event on God's prophetic timetable is the second coming of Jesus, which is recorded in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. But one more time, we will have a parenthesis in chapter 17, 18, and the first part of 19 to prepare us for the discussion of the coming again of the Lord Jesus. Okay? Now, before I jump in then, you say, my soul, you do talk faster than any boy from Georgia I've ever heard. And you've just thrown out like a motherload of stuff. And if you have a question, 
Say, well, can you please just address this before you go on? Now is the time to speak or forever hold your peace. So, do I have a question? If not, I'm going to assume I just say, yes, ma'am. Seven thunders are empty. When we looked at it, if you remember, we pointed out that I argued that in some sense they are a measure of God's grace because even though there are seven thunders, nothing comes out of them. There was something that could have come out of them. He chose it. He chooses instead to stay his hand, simply announce them, but not pour them out. So we get the thunder, but by God's grace, we don't get the lightning, the hailstorm, and all the other bad stuff that could have flowed from it. Tonight in chapter 16, it's all over. As I say in the outline, judgment day has come to planet Earth. All right? So, because we're looking at two chapters tonight, I'm not going to read the verses in uh, advance, but I'm simply going to walk you through them, beginning in chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, and then chapter 16. I think we can get through all of it, but if we don't, we'll just pick up next week where we end tonight. But the first thing I want you to see in chapter 15 is God will make preparation for judgment day. Look at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven. If you mark your Bible, as I do, you should underline the word or the phrase, I saw, because it appears in verse 1, it appears again in verse 2, and it appears again in verse 5. So chapter 15 is easy to outline around the three, I saw, I saw, and even the phrase, I looked, in verse 5 is the same Greek word. It could have been translated after this, I saw again. So these three uh, visions that appear in chapter 15 provide a very nice, neat understanding of this particular chapter. And basically what he wants us to understand is this. God is in control of all that is taking place. This vision that he sees is in heaven. So the source of the vision is our God himself. As one man said, God wants us to understand... He hears our cries. He sees our tears. He knows when we're suffering on His behalf. Remember, I told you, folks in the uh, persecuted churches around the world, over and over and over when asked, what are your favorite books of the Bible? They say in the Old Testament, it's Daniel. In the New Testament, it's Revelation. Why? Because these books teach us, in the end, our God wins. Yes, we may go through enormous suffering, persecution, even martyrdom, But the book of Revelation reminds us all that is taking place is under the sovereign control of our God. He sees our pain. He hears our cries. He knows our hurts. And the one who is called God Almighty, in chapter 15, verse 3, chapter 16, verse 7, and chapter 16, verse 14, he is going to continue to advance, and he will indeed establish his Kingdom. Now, what do we see then in this 15th chapter? Three movements. First of all, God's wrath will be finished. John says, I saw another sign in heaven, which, by the way, connects it with a previous sign in chapter 12 and verse 1. Furthermore, he describes this sign as great. We get our word mega from it. It is a mega sign. And it is also, he says, an amazing sign. And what is great and amazing that he sees seven angels with seven plagues, which are the eschatos, the last, the very end of God's judgment. By the way, the word plagues 
is the Greek word plagueus. I didn't check it, but it may be we just transliterated the word out of Greek into English. So these plagues, he says, that he sees are the eschaton, the eschatos, the last, and with them the wrath of God is finished. In other words, history now has reached its uh, climactic end in horrible eschatological judgment. And I like to say it this way, the patterns of God's judgment that we have seen running throughout history for thousands and thousands of years now comes to a fitting and climactic end in the pouring out of these particular judgments. They are the last, and with them the wrath of God is finished. Secondly, in spite of the fact that this is a time of wrath and judgment, and this brings me such encouragement, the nations will also worship. Look at what it says there in verse 2. I saw a second time what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Notice he said it seemed to be. It appeared to be. This, he's, he's not describing literally what it is because what he saw was so fantastic he could say only, well, this is what it looked like to me. It looked like a sea of glass that was mingled with fire. And I also saw, in addition to that, the saints. You say, why would you call them the saints? Because they're described as those who had conquered the beast, number one, and its image, number two, and the number of its name, which we saw back in chapter 13, was 666, the superlative form of the number for man. And they were standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they were not only standing in heaven uh, in this uh, beautiful vision, but they are singing what he calls both the song of Moses, who he parenthetically adds, oh, by the way, is the servant of God, and also the song of the Lamb. So he sees the redeemed appearing in this uh, vision which signals judgment. Anytime you see in the Bible, uh, in uh, the apocalypse in particular, fire mingled in this kind of a way, it's usually a sign or the context is of judgment. He points out that they are victorious because they have conquered the beast, who is the Antichrist. Uh, they did not uh, bow and worship his image. They did not receive through his mark the number of his name. And so as a result of that, they are standing in heaven, a place of victory, and now a place of great security and protection. And they are singing a song that he calls the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. If you again are a note taker, and I will probably run out of room here in a minute, the Song of Moses is found in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through, I think it's 1 through, where did it go? 8, yes. And it's also found in Revelation chapter 5, that is the Song of the Lamb, in verses 8 through 14. So there is the source uh, of the song that they are singing in heaven. And here it is, verse 3 and verse 4. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O, I love this, King of the ethne, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and look at it again, all the nations will come and worship you. Why? because your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, you guys know what uh, a passion Southeastern Seminary has, as well as Wake Crossroads Baptist Church for the nations. And that's why in the margin of my Bible, 
I've written two words, or well, two words, but the two words are the missionary promise. The missionary promise, because he promises us here in these verses, all the nations will come and worship you. So we have a wonderful promise that our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to have all the nations come and worship Him. He is the Lord God Almighty because of His marvelous deeds. He is the Lord God Almighty because He is just and true in all of His ways. He alone should be feared. He alone should be glorified. He alone is truly holy. And in all of that, he can summarize by saying, and all of this, your righteous acts have been revealed. I like what my friend David Platt, who is now the president of the International Mission Board, said in commenting on this beautiful song in verse 3 and verse 4. David said, very simply, there is a high view of God in heaven. If that is true, and it is, then there should be a high view of God on earth. There should be a high view of God in our churches. And there should be a high view of God in all of our lives. And so in the context of great judgment, we also see that the nations are going to worship the Lamb during the great tribulation period. And then number three, God's glory and power will also be displayed in this day. Verse 5, After this I saw, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent could be translated tabernacle. So there's Old Testament wilderness imagery here. Uh, in the sanctuary of the tent or the tabernacle, uh, the witness in heaven, it was open. And out of the sanctuary came, here they are, the seven angels with the seven plagues. plagues. Now they looked like priests. They're clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest and one of the four living creatures. We met them back in chapter 4. They are angelic beings of worship. Uh, we, find, we see them also in chapter 5 as well. They gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. We saw the wrath of God mentioned in verse 1. Now we see it at the end of this section in verse 7. The wrath of God, the one who lives forever and ever. And as a result, the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God, from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels. And note, the word that uh, began, uh, a key word that began in verse 1 is the key word that ends verse 8, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So, for the third time, verse 5, John sees something. This time it is the sanctuary or the tabernacle, which again reminds us of God's faithfulness to Israel in the Exodus wanderings. This is the place where God always manifested His presence among His people. But this time, out of His presence, comes these seven great angels who have the seven bold judgments, which are described as the seven plagues. They have the appearance of holy priests because they have pure bright linen with golden sashes, one of the living creatures then introduces them, giving them their bowls full of wrath. And immediately when they have received these bowls of judgment, the text says the sanctuary was filled again with the presence of God in foreboding judgment because it was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And so great was the display. The text says no one could enter the sanctuary until the judgment was finished. 
And so chapter 15 serves, if you like, as an incredible prelude, an incredible prelude to the final series of judgments or the final series of judgments that is going to visit the earth at the end of the Great Tribulation recorded very quickly, very simply, and very concisely in chapter 16. So even though we've got 21 more verses to look at, we will be able to move through them very rapidly because they're very clear and straightforward in what they are communicating to us. And what are they communicating? Well, our second major observation tonight, God will pour out His wrath on Judgment Day. Verse 1 of chapter 16, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go, it's an imperative, a word of command. Pour out, another imperative, word of command. Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. I have written in my notes here, this is a different kind of commission, isn't it? We received a great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They received a great commission to bring wrath to the earth in God's judgment. And so it's a much different kind of commissioning that they received. Now, let me say a couple of things before we start walking through the seven bowls very quickly. First of all, they're very similar. They're very similar both to the plagues of Exodus in Exodus chapter 7 through 12. So we see a lot of similarity between the Exodus plagues and these bowl plagues. That's one thing. Secondly, there is a significant amount of similarity. Not identity or not identical, but a lot of similarity with the trumpet judgments of chapters 8 and 9. I think, again, it's because of this overlapping theme that we see with the seventh leading to the seven, leading to the seven. So it doesn't surprise me that they are there. Some, again, have said, well, they should line up identically with one another. All the ones are the same thing, all the twos, all the threes. I just don't think that works. And I've got some really, really good friends who are really fine scholars who see it that way, but I still think this kind of understanding is more accurate to what we see in the text of Scripture. So, uh, one of the reasons I say that, by the way, is that he tells us over in uh, chapter 16, verse 18, and these were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And it sure seems to me that this last series of judgments is the climactic final series of judgments, and therefore they're not to be identified in an identical kind of a way with the previous judgments, all right? Robert Mounts, by the way, who's a wonderful New Testament scholar, simply said it this way, uh, never again to be repeated. Do not miss the fact that all of this is God's doing as he pours out the final and climactic manifestation of his judgment. Now, as he does that, what does he do? Well, there are seven angels with seven bowls. There are seven facets to this final judgment with the seven plagues. Number one, God will send disease. We saw in verse 1 that he told them to go and pour out the, on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God, both words of imperative. So here we go, verse 2. So the first angel went out, and he poured his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. God's wrath is poured out initially and first of all upon people who have rejected His Lordship. And the text just plainly says, 
harmful and painful sores come upon those who follow and worship the beast. Well, this recalls the sixth plague of Egypt in Exodus 9. It also recalls the story of a righteous man named Job, chapter 2, verse 7, and another righteous man named Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 and verse 21. But notice here, the only people that experience this foul, painful, loathsome plague are unbelievers. There will be believers alive at this time, though most of them will be in the process of being martyred and put to death. But it is not upon believers that these plagues are poured out. It is upon the unbeliever, those who have the mark of the beast. And I found a very interesting uh, cross-reference passage in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 12. Listen to what the Bible says there. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And it's clearly talking about the tribulation period. It's clearly talking about the day of the Lord. And there may be indeed uh, some sense in which Zechariah 14:12 provides a commentary on Revelation chapter 16 and verse 2. So the first thing God does is He will send disease of some sort. Secondly, God will destroy the seas. Look at verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse, and not some of it, not even most of it, not a fourth, not a third. Every living thing died that was in the sea. Again, this sounds somewhat like the first Egyptian plague in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 19. It is similar to, but not identical to, the second trumpet judgment of chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. There, some things died. Here, everything dies. And in fact, doing a little research, the oceans, which occupy 70% of the Earth's surface, thought that would be a, just a little tidbit that you would find interesting, becomes nothing other than a pool of death and a toxic wasteland. In fact, one commentator said the phrase, watery grave will take on a whole new meaning on this particular day. So God destroys uh, and sends disease. God destroys and He sends and turns the sea into blood. Thirdly, He now moves to pollute the waters. Blood follows blood. Verse 4, the third angel poured out His bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood doesn't say that everything died, although I think we would be right in drawing the conclusion that everything died in the fresh water, just as everything had died in the seas. And then, almost unexpectedly, an angel breaks out in a song of praise. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, why? For you brought these judgments. And then note the logic of what he just said. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets. Okay, they like blood so much. Great. You gave them more blood than they could ever manage or ever hope to have. You have given them blood to drink. And then this is one of the most striking statements in all the Bible to me. The very last phrase there of verse 6, it is what they deserved. 
So, God sends His angel who destroys the seas. Now He sends another angel to turn the fresh water into blood. Again, this sounds very similar to the first Egyptian plague. Also sounds very similar to the third uh, trumpet judgment. And one even pointed out that it is somewhat reminiscent of the judgment God brought when He sent the two witnesses to bear witness to Him in chapter 11 and the fresh water became so scarce to people on planet Earth. So then flowing out of that again is this song of this angel who notes that it is our God who gives them exactly what they deserve. And of course, a couple of verses that reinforce that. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? The King James said, Do right. Psalm 19:9, The ordinance of the Lord, they are sure and they are all together righteous into the witness of Genesis and to the witness of the psalmist, the author of the Revelation, would say amen and amen, which simply means this, brothers and sisters, God is never capricious in His judgment. He's never capricious. Uh, He's never arbitrary. God's never vengeful in His judgment where He simply takes His wrath out on people who may not deserve it. No, 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 no. What God does in judgment is always just. What God does in judgment is always deserved. The Lord of all the earth will do right. Verse 6, it is what they deserve. Number 4, God will torment unrepentant sinners. In contrast to the first three bowls which are poured out on the earth, this fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun, and as a result, people are scorched with fire by what the text calls by the fierce heat. Look at it. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat, but what did they do in response? They repented? No. They turned to God in faith? No. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, they did not repent and they did not give Him glory. John MacArthur, in commenting on this particular plague, says this, quote, Searing heat, exceeding anything in human experience, will scorch men so severely that it will seem as if the atmosphere is on fire. You say, how will God do this? I don't know. Text doesn't tell us. It's not hard for me to imagine in the world in which we live that uh, something like this could easily come to pass, both by natural means, but certainly uh, by uh, means uh, related to uh, nuclear holocaust. Uh, I could imagine that if the earth were to unleash upon itself a full worldwide global nuclear war, uh, what would happen to our atmosphere could only be speculated as to be tragic and horrible beyond imagination. The text doesn't tell us exactly how it will happen. It simply tells us that it is going to happen. But the text is really not as interested in how God does this as it is in how human beings respond. You would think by now they've got it figured out. We can't beat God. They would know by now that He is there. He is sovereign. He is in control. He has revealed Himself in salvation through the person of His Son, but rather than turn to God and repent, the text says they blasphemed, they cursed God, they did not repent, and they would not give Him glory. 
And as one man said, what an undeniable and sad commentary on the depravity and wickedness of Adam's sons and Adam's daughters. Knowing full well from whom these plagues come and why they come, they do not repent, they revile, they do not bless God, they blaspheme God. And as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, God has been long-suffering, God has been gracious, God has been patient, but when these judgments come, rather than it salting their hearts, it simply hardens their hearts in the direction that they've already chosen to go anyway. Number five, God will destroy the kingdom of the Antichrist when he pours out the bowl judgments. Look at what it says there in verse 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Whatever that means, we'll talk about it in just a moment. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, so I at least have to believe some aspect of the darkness of the kingdom of the beast is a physical type of punishment and a physical type of pain, so I don't want to limit it to that. Again, they did not repent. They did not praise. They did not glorify. They did not worship. They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, that's looking back up again to the first judgment, and second time, and I believe last time in the book of Revelation, it is noted, they did not repent of their deeds. The fifth bowl then is reminiscent of the ninth Egyptian plague in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 29. It starts locally but it extends worldwide. It starts on the location or at the location of the throne of the beast, the Antichrist. So the initial uh, individual or, or locus of this judgment is the Antichrist and his kingdom. And what does it say of his kingdom? It is plunged into darkness. Now, what kind of darkness is his kingdom plunged into? And again, commentators are all over the place. Some want to make the argument that it's economical. And they look ahead to the judgment of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18. Some say it has to be physical. And you saw there, as I read a moment ago, that they gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. So evidently, what they received in the first bowl judgment gets intensified in some ways in the fifth bowl judgment. Is it political? Well, I think there's a possibility of that as well because as you move toward the end of the tribulation, in fact, again, many of you would know this having studied it, he's going to uh, come to his... He's going to have a... a, a how do I want to say this? During the seven years, he will reign. But his reign reaches an apex at the midpoint. Three and a half years into it, is when I believe he receives worldwide acclaim and worldwide domination. That's where you go back to chapter 13. He receives what appears to be a deadly wound. Looks like he's done. He's over. He's been assassinated. Something happens. He is revived. It is a counterfeit resurrection. That is clear as a bell. And as a result, all of the world stands up and begins to worship, praise, and adore the beast. But as we move on from the midpoint toward the end... These judgments are intensifying. Things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I have to believe as a result of that, his kingdom, which is worldwide, is very short-lived and begins to unravel very, very, very rapidly. And so as a result of that, maybe we're talking about not just economic darkness and 
physical pain and darkness, but also political darkness as well. Some have even said perhaps it is spiritual darkness that is in view here. After all, it says at the very end of, those, uh, of this plague, they cursed the God of heaven. They did not repent of their deeds. But there is a passage of Scripture that uh, also may at least provide some light for us. Isn't that a nice turn, uh, light on darkness? But if you go back and look at Mark chapter 13, uh, where when we stay through Mark, you know that the 13th chapter is what is known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talked about the end of time. And listen to what uh, Jesus said in Mark chapter 13 and verse 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And so there may be a sense in which what we're seeing here with this fifth bowl is also related to the judgment uh, that Jesus spoke of in Mark chapter 13 as well. All right, that leads us then to number six. God will gather His enemies for a final battle. He will gather His enemies for a final battle. Look at what it says there in verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for what are called the kings coming from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of, and here's your counterfeit trinity again, the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that is the minister of propaganda for Antichrist, three unclean spirits like frogs. And I would point out that frogs were unclean animals according to uh, the dietary uh, laws of uh, the Pentateuch and of the books of Moses. For they are demonic spirits, not literal frogs. They, they're like frogs. They're demonic spirits. They perform signs. They go abroad to the kings of the whole earth. To do what? To assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. There it is the third time in chapter 15 and 16. And then here's this parenthetical statement again. Behold, I am coming like a thief in contrast to all of these who follow the beast and who have the mark of the beast and the number of the beast who are suffering all these horrific things. Blessed is the one who stays awake. You're alert. You're looking for the coming again in every generation. They keep their garments on. That is, they allow themselves not to be exposed in their nakedness. That is, without the righteousness of Christ in their sinfulness on the, or, or that He may not go about naked and be seen exposed. He assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called the place of Armageddon. Now, number of things I can say, I'll be quick. First of all, uh, the great, Euphra great river Euphrates. It's interesting, that phrase is used five different times in the Bible and is used twice in the book of Revelation. It was already in back in 9.14. Here it is again in chapter 16, verse 12. I didn't know this, but the river runs 1,800 miles. It runs 1,800 miles from Mount Ararat in the north all the way down to the Persian Gulf, and it is still to this day what is often called the lifeblood of the Fertile Crescent Valley. Well, it may be the lifeline, lifeblood for the Fertile Crescent, but on this particular day, verse 12, it is dried up, 
and it is made ready for the coming of a great army from the east. Now, this is where there's some of this overlap because we read about an army coming from the east back in chapter 9, and there it was also the sixth. It was the sixth trumpet. So there is some, I think, overlap going on between the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl, though I don't think it's exactly identical. I think you've got this army building making its way toward, of course, the land of Israel. And they come at God's direction. Then coupled with this army that's coming are the, uh, is the aid of demonic spirits, these, these three unclean spirits that are characterized like frogs coming out of the mouth of the unholy trinity. And they come, and they come for one purpose, to gather all the armies of that part of the world to assemble them for a battle on that day, the battle that he calls in verse 16, the battle of Armageddon. Now, how do you put all this together very quickly? I think that the Antichrist kingdom is going to begin to fall apart. That's what I think. I think war is going to break out all over the globe. But I think the climactic battles will be fought in the Middle East. Surprise, surprise. Which is what the Scriptures clearly indicate over and over and over. I think initially they will be gathering to battle one another. And if you want some commentary on that, go read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Zechariah 14. And I think you'll see some commentary that would indicate that that is very much what the situation will be. But then as they come together to fight one another... What does the Scripture say? There will be a sign in heaven, the sign of the coming again of the Son of Man. And when that takes place, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They'll gather together and they will unite in opposing the one who comes riding on a white horse in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. So I think that's how most likely this battle will come to its formation at this particular time. Well, verse 16 tells us it will happen at the place that in Hebrew is called Har-Megeddon or what is sometimes referred to as the hill or the mountain of Megiddo. Uh, Robert Mounts points out the ancient city lying on the north side of the Carmel Ridge between the coastal plain and the valley of Estrelon. So what the heck does that mean? Bottom line, the valley of Megiddo and Armageddon is almost due north of Jerusalem, about 40 to 50 miles. It is uh, slightly south and west of the Sea of Galilee. I can't find it, so I, I, want, I wouldn't put it in a book, but uh, I have read repeatedly over the years that Napoleon, upon looking at the Valley of Megiddo, said this has to be the most perfect battlefield in all of the world. Whether he said it or not, it certainly is a very uh, appropriate location for massive armies gathering for a climactic uh, uh, apex of battle in uh, the end time. It is throughout history, by the way, has been a very famous battlefield. There have been many, many different conflicts that have taken place there. But the Bible says in the end, the climactic battle will take place in this very place. Now, I do agree with Robert Mounts. At this particular point in time in history, let's face it, when Armageddon takes place, there are going to be wars and battles all over the globe. But even though there may be battles going all over the globe, this is going to be the focal point. This is going to be the omega point of the final battle to end all battles. 
But I also agree with what Mount says, and here's what Mount says. Geography is not the major concern. And I agree with that, though I still think it's that geography. Wherever it takes place, Armageddon is symbolic of the final overthrow of all the forces of evil by the might and power of God. Well, I don't disagree with that. I just still think it's going to be in that place. The great conflict between God and Satan, Christ and Antichrist, good and evil, that lies behind the perplexing course of history will be in the end an issue that results in a final struggle. There God will emerge victorious, and He will take with Him all who have placed their faith in Him. This is what is meant by Har-Mageddon. And I don't disagree with that. I just still think geographically it is actually going to be the focal point of the final great battle. That leads us then to our last bowl, number seven. God will conclude his judgment, giving sinners what they deserve. Let me just hit this very quickly. I want to watch my time. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, and this is very important, it is done. Remember, we read back in chapter 15 and verse 1 that these plagues are when the wrath of God is finished. And so you look at the end of chapter 15, verse 8. These are the seven plagues of the seven angels that will be finished. And now he tells us they've all been poured out. It's over. It's done. God wins. Antichrist goes down. And now it's time for the kingdom to be ushered in. And it is coming in with Jesus coming in chapter 19 and a millennial kingdom being established in chapter 20. Well, because it's all over, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. This earthquake is so great, there's never been one since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. And then a very debated phrase, or a very debated verse, the great city was split into three parts. Question, what is the great city that he is talking about? Well, a good argument can be made for Jerusalem. A good argument can be made for Jerusalem. That is my natural, initial inclination. However, I've been persuaded otherwise. Uh, another argument can be made quite readily for it being the city of Rome. And uh, that would certainly have made sense in the first century historical context to those reading uh, the book of Revelation. I think, though, because of what we will see in the next two weeks from chapters 17 and 18, I think the great city that he is talking about is Babylon, the city that represents all this evil in opposition to God. And you'll notice what it says in verse 19. The city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great. So interestingly, Rome is not mentioned by name in verse 19. Jerusalem is not mentioned by name in verse 19. And you don't have the kind of marker that we had earlier when it talked about this ungodly city that he called spiritually Sodom, which is the place where the Lord was crucified. I don't know how that can be anything other than Jerusalem. You do not have the same kind of indication here. And again, because he is going to go into a lengthy discussion of the evil of this city called Babylon, I think that is the better view of what is being discussed here. So the great city, that is Babylon as a, a demonic evil system, is torn apart. Along with it, the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain 
the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. He is going to pour out in full measure His wrath on economic, political, and religious Babylon, which we will see again unwrapped over the next two weeks. And what happened? Every island fled away, and no mountain was to be found. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds, each fell from heaven on people. By the way, I did do my research here. The heaviest hailstone on record up to this day weighed a total of 1.93 pounds. Now, let me just say, if a hailstone at that weight hits you, turn out the lights, party's over, okay? But 1.93 pounds is not 100 pounds. So the earth is going to be pulverized in a way that has never happened in all of human history. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds fell from heaven on people. And of course, by now, they finally bow and worship and repent and glorify God. No, they simply curse God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. And so as one man said, so great is their hatred for God, they curse His name with their final dying breath. And yes, there is coming a day when judgment will come to planet earth. Let's pray together. Father, these are not uh, easy or certainly not fun verses to read and study. And yet, Lord, they are a revelation of your righteous judgment. And, and I want to make very clear, your word teaches there is glory and goodness in your wrath. There is glory and goodness in your wrath. Because it is a demonstration of your holiness. It is a demonstration of your justice. It is a demonstration of your righteousness. It is a demonstration that people indeed will get what they deserve. No one will stand at the judgment, shake their fist in your face and say, you were unfair. Uh, you gave me what I did not deserve. No one will say that because you are holy, righteous, and just. And yet, Lord, I'm so very, very, very grateful that because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have to get what we deserve we can receive what your marvelous grace has made possible as we repent of our sin and put our faith in the perfect atoning work of your Son. I am so very grateful tonight that we can gather here as brothers and sisters rejoicing that our God does not give us what we deserve. He gives us what his marvelous grace has provided. Now, Lord, you also told us tonight in this passage of Scripture that even in the midst of great judgment, the nations are going to come and worship the King, worship the Lamb, worship our wonderful Savior. That means, Lord, that we have the opportunity right now to be a part of what you're doing in bringing the nations to yourself because there is going to come a day when your grace comes to an end. There is going to come a day when, as the Word says, the wrath and judgment of God is finished. Uh, payday someday is certainly coming to planet Earth. So, Lord, while we have breath, while we have life, and while we have time, may we be active in getting that good news of Jesus to every people, tribe, tongue, and nation that they might likewise join with us around the throne worshiping the Lamb who was slain forever and ever. It's in His name that we pray. Amen and amen. Next week, the great whore.
chapter 17. I will see you next week.